0: The Sweetwater Education Association leadership has heard from many teachers concerning the lack of respect they've received from students in their classes. Many students are apathetic toward education at the best and loudly disruptive, including yelling of expletives and tossing of things not meant to be tossed at the worst. These are not isolated behaviors. Teachers report students refusing to do any work, refusing to comply with safety drills, cursing at, student, at teachers and classmates, walking out of classes, making sexual comments about classmates and staff, incessantly talking, making rude comments about the content of the course, and more. Well, was it that special? Another teacher's gathering... Complaining about students not being respectful. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Paul. And we're back with another astounding podcast. (laughs) Yes, we're a little bit better. The voice is a little bit better. We did the CAT scan yesterday. Going to find out why our hearing is not still 100%, but we're better. And yes, that what you just heard here a little bit ago could be a complaint that has been registered throughout the country. Teachers having a problem with their students being unruly, being disrespectful, pounding some teachers into the Into the tile. Hey, I've been there, done that a few times. Many years ago, doing some sub teaching before we went on and did something a little more important. And I'm telling you, public education, at least in the United States, is a joke! It's the prisoners running the prison. And why is that? Because of the worldview that says, you know what? We don't need God messing around in our our affairs here. We could teach these students, and they're just going to bow down at our feet and do everything that we want them to do. I've got news for you. It doesn't work that way. The moment you kick God to the curb, you're going to have problems. And not just in your school. You're going to have problems in your family, in your government, in your law practice, just cleaning the streets. You're going to have problems. The nation that forgets God gets turned into hell. And look at what's happening all around us. Anyway, didn't mean to make that a long, protracted commentary by way of introduction. I want to welcome you to my worldviews here. We've been talking about the Christian Constitution, which is the book of Romans. And we're all the way to Romans chapter 8. And verse 18, and we're going to be taking a look at kind of a follow-up of what we talked about before, because Paul had given us all a glimpse of hope amid all of our sin by saying, you know what, those who are in Christ are no longer condemned, nor can they be, because of their position in Jesus. This is good news. This is good news because there's so many people out there today who are spiritual or maybe religious that have no security at all. Why? Because they're depending upon themselves to be justified before God. And yet God says, you know what? If you just trust me because of the faith that I have placed in you, so that you can trust me, all is going to be forgiven. There is no longer any condemnation. And the Apostle Paul is then going to follow up on this in Romans chapter 8, in verse 18, with more or less what some have turned termed as an already-not-yet type of scenario. Because even though we have complete justification before God in our standing in the person of Jesus, we're not there yet. We still have to develop. We still need the sanctification, this setting apart, this growing in maturity before we reach the final goal of glorification before God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about here in verses uh 18 and following. And so we might as well just go ahead and take a look at this. And by the way, if you hear my voice kind of cracking up every once in a while, it's because I'm still battling the gunk. Uh, we still don't have our full voice, but it's better. We're getting there. Hopefully it'll, it'll be back around sometime after Christmas. Who knows? But anyway, starting in verse 18, I would recommend that if you're following along, get your Bible. Open it up. It's going to be the only way you'll ever become familiar with what God says. And really, in life, that's all that matters. What does God say? What is God revealing to us as far as his perspective, his worldview, on how things should be? Whether we're talking about our future glory or how we should treat our neighbor or how we should uh, vote for certain people or whatever. What does God say about it? Now, this doesn't mean that God is, you know, infinite and comprehensive at everything he has to say about himself and so on and so forth in the Bible because the Bible is a finite book. But there is enough direction there to get us going in the right direction on, I, I really can't think of any subject that is not either directly discussed or indirectly discussed uh, when, when it comes to life. So if you have your Bible, get it out and read along with Paul here. Starting in verse 18, Paul says, For I consider, and I'm reading from the ESV here, if you have King James or N. S. or whatever, something that is reputable, you'll be fine. Anyway, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the... Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know What to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So let's kind of back up here and take a look at what Paul has said here. And I've more or less entitled this groaning for glory groaning for glory because in Paul's discussion here like i said following on the the heels there's no longer any condemnation for the for the saint of god and by the way if you are born of god you are a christian in the biblical sense that jesus talks about being born from above born spiritually brought back from the dead in trespasses and sins to have a spiritual life whereby the Spirit of God indwells you. If you are one of those things that you're going to be groaning, not not because you're, oh man, uh, God, he's making me do something I don't want to do. No, not that at all. You're groaning in the sense of maturing, and you're seeing sin for what it is and what God expects of you and of the future life ahead. And it's not only you. Paul's going to get into others that are groaning as well, waiting for this consummation of the Christian life, which will not take place until you're gone, till you have deceased, till you have left this body and entered God's presence in heaven. And then later your body will be glorified and follow. Paul says, you know, I I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What sufferings is he talking about here? Well, I think partially uh, just being a Christian Paul had referred to this earlier uh, in, uh, what is it, verse 17? I think it's verse 17 here, Uh, when he says um, that we're heirs uh, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You know, not everything was uh, peaches and cream for Jesus when he walked the earth, and neither will it be for those who followed him then or will follow him now. The world hates Jesus. The world is going to hate you if you are a follower of Jesus. Uh, Paul obviously knew what suffering was all about as he went about in his missionary journeys, beaten, uh, left for dead, uh, persecuted in the sense of being insulted, and it, it, so it is going to be with you if you are a Christian. You know, there's this kind of, I don't know, dumbness, I just for lack of a better word, in Christian circles today that either says, you know what, to lead a Christian life means that you're not going to be persecuted. On the other hand, there's going to be those who say that everything that a Christian does is, a, is an object of persecution. Uh, somebody calls you... Uh, a dirty name or something like that, then you're being persecuted. We don't really understand what real persecution is today. We, we just kind of go to extremes one way or the other, and we don't ever come back here. But to live a Christian life and to have people demean you for what you believe, mainly because they're attacking God, they're not necessarily attacking you, uh, is to be persecuted what did you stand for? What did you stand against? You know, the, the Christian life is not just one of apologetics, which means to defend the, fa- defend the faith, as Peter would talk about, but it's also one of polemics, where you go after those that are perpetrating a lie either against God or against Jesus, against the Holy Spirit, against Christianity, against the Bible. You're going after them. You're destroying those arguments. You may say, well, but Paul, where where, where does this say anything about you're supposed to be polemical? Well, I'm glad you asked because one place that I always turn to, and I've frequently done this with the Mormons because they do not like being exposed for being the hypocrites that they are, for being the pretenders that they are, but I always take him over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and starting in verses, uh, verse 3, where, he, where the Apostle Paul is talking about, you know, this, this defending of his own ministry against these super apostles out there that were condemning him for being a Christian, for persecuting him. And he says, you know, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That's your polemics there. That's destroying the arguments that have been raised against Christianity. That's part of the Christian life. That's part of the suffering. Although sometimes, you know, there is great pleasure in destroying these arguments. Because it helps the detractors, the opponents, the critics, the hostiles of Christianity to see what Christianity is in light of their faulty arguments. So there's a certain joy there. But then there are other sufferings at this present time that, that the Apostle Paul is talking about, whether we are just suffering, you know, from either physical maladies, like the one I've been going through for the past almost 40 days here, stuff like that, or maybe a tornado blows through town, and uh, all of a sudden you've lost everything. Uh, think of Job in the, in the Old Testament, the type, type of persecution suffering he went through, There's all kinds of suffering, but the Apostle Paul says, you know what? In the grand scheme of things, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. The the ESV says to us, but the preposition that is being used here could also be translated in us. And Paul's going to talk about that a little bit more here shortly because, you see, this body is not all that it's always going to be. Once the Christian goes on, he leaves this, this life, and it's the consummation of time, and what Paul is talking about in the expectation later on, this body is going to be resurrected like Jesus and his body was resurrected after his death on the cross. And he received a glorified body Christians can expect that in the future. I remember my my mother, who passed away probably, was it six years ago, talking about how much she hated growing old. Uh, and, you know, the older I get, I can relate to that more and more. I don't like the idea of growing old. There's certain things I feel like I can't do that I sometimes think about and enjoyed in the past. I used to be a... Big, not big time, but I used to play basketball fairly well. In my younger days, I was a, I I could score, we put it that way. Uh, My idol, if if you will, at that time was Pete Maravich. I tried to do the things that he did and did several of them, uh, with the exception I was five inches shorter than he was. (laughs) But I could shoot the ball. Today, I cannot do those things. Uh, my body just will not uh, let me perform in that way. Like you say, I used to play football. Uh, can't play football. Uh, can't play baseball. Now, I still officiate. I've talked about that before, but that's not nearly the same thing as actually getting out there and competing. My body just cannot do it. Uh, that said, though, one day... And I remember talking to a friend of mine years ago, a basketball friend. And I said, You know, I hope one day that uh, when we get to glory, that there will be a big basketball court out there and maybe I'll actually be six foot six like I wanted to be. And uh, I can go back to playing to the glory of God on his basketball floor. That will only happen with a glorified body, though. Uh, in the meantime, here I am growing older. Suffering because of it. But once again, that is not to be comparable to the things that are going to be revealed in us. Christians are going to have a resurrected, glorified body one day, as is promised here in the in in God's Word. But he says in verse 16, we're not the only one that's suffering. There's others. Other things that are suffering, and why are they suffering? Uh, because of what you know, Adam did way back in the garden, and the sin nature that has been passed on to all of creation. Well, specifically to humans, but the effects of sin has affected everything, without being redundant. And so Paul says here in verse 19: the for the creation waits for the eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this is what I had talked about here a little bit ago. There's going to be a day when all of God's children will receive their glorified state. And the creation is waiting for this. We're talking about God's creation that, that was brought about when he spoke it all into existence uh, thousands of years ago. The creation waits with eager longing. It's almost a personification of the birds and the, and the trees and the grass and, and the mountains and the clouds and whatever. It's a personification of it because you see they've all been corrupted. Our sin corrupted everything. This is why when you know I hear people talk about specifically, you know just just thinking about it here, those in the homosexual movement talking about, you know, that uh, there's nothing wrong with the love that they do because, you know, it's done in in private. It's a lie. It's a lie. Not only is their corruption, their perversion not done in private, oftentimes they bring it out here and shove it in everybody's faces. When that happens, it corrupts everything. They say, well, it doesn't affect you. Yes, it does. Like I said, they can't—they can't keep it in the closet, so to speak. They're—they're they're desperate for attention. And like a parasite, they cannot survive without a host. They cannot survive without their attention from others, who look at them and they go, "Uh, I don't think that's how God intended." And that's wh- the way it is with all sin. It is. You know, when, when, when Adam fell, it corrupted all things. And people have this natural inclination in that direction. And the same thing happened to all of creation. None of it can glorify God as it was originally intended because of the presence of sin. Everything is in decay. Everything. You know, even when you talk to certain people who want to, you know, prop up evolution and they say, well, you know, this is the truth and, we evolve from slop that crawled up out of the some cosmic soup somewhere. It is all going to decay to the point of death. The law, was it the second law of thermodynamics? Where, you know, once a uh, an energy source is used up, it can never return to that same source again. It becomes cold. I mean, it just dies. And because our universe is a finite universe, it's eventually going to wind down, and we see that. You know, you got so many people today that are complaining about, you know, climate change and whatever, trying to change. It's all headed in the direction of death and dying. This is because of the presence of sin. And so creation, it's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God because then they know, it knows, that all of the death and the dying will be over with. The presence of sin will stop. It says in verse 20, Paul says, for the creation was subjected to futility. The the word here uh, literally means to frustration. It cannot, once again, achieve what it was originally designed to do, which was to glorify God. Originally, God, when he finished creating all things, he said it was very good. Well, when sin came into the world, that all changed. It doesn't mean that it was totally corrupt in the sense that you cannot look at the mountains and the and the trees and, and the valleys and, and the and the oceans and the like and go, wow, this is awesome. In fact, one of the things that just absolutely blows me away from time to time when I took a look at some of the pictures, is outer space. The the universe and the and the and the stars and the constellations it is breathtaking at what god has done and yet even it has been corrupted it is it has been frustrated it has been uh reduced to vanity because ultimately when sin is present there i mean we start talking about sin uh detracting from god's glory and distracting the attention of creation and mankind itself it becomes futile it became it becomes uh there's a big uh, philo- philosophical word that is thrown around today it's called nihilism it becomes meaningless why because the object for which that which was created is lost sin has de- has detracted or distracted our attention from the object and so the the stars and the constellations and the and the planets and whatever that's out there, they're just there. There's no meaning. And this is why you see so much, so many people today, you know, reverting to deconstruction. I've talked about that a little bit here on the on the podcast, where the object has been replaced by the subject. The subject is do the doing their own personal interpretation, which could mean anything at any time and arbitrarily change for no reason at all. And it changes from person to person to person. It is Totally ridiculous without the object. But the creation was subjected to futility. When Adam sinned and stood in judgment before God, what was one of the first things he told Adam and then Eve? You know, uh, because you have disobeyed me, now the ground is cursed. You're not going to be able to do the things that I wanted you to do initially, Adam, because of your sin, and so the ground is going to be going to be cursed, you're not going to be able to to enjoy it like you used to. there's going to be thorns and briars and nettles and and all of those neat things that cause man problems today the, the weeds, if you will and and this is what is almost makes it humorous sometimes when I hear people who are big promoters of you know doing dope uh you know legalizing marijuana. And they say, well, you know, marijuana was around in the beginning. No, it wasn't. Weeds, or weed, was part of the curse. It wasn't around in the beginning. It wasn't called very good. It became, you know, subject to Adam's sin. So, (laughs) the... the." The big exponents of all this, you know, to try to promote it so they can go out and get high, get stoned or whatever. Uh, no, you know, that wasn't part of God's original design that you go out there and be stoned. as part of the curse. And creation was subjected to this. Not of its own will, once once again. Paul personifies all of creation. And this is because God did this. In what, For what reason, though? In the hope, in verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its slavery, ESV here as bondage, but from its slavery to corruption. This is part of the curse. This is part of what we did as human beings to all of creation. And it's kind of a curious thing now today that once again you have all the climate change people out there uh, clamoring to shut down uh, oil and coal and we're going to all live by uh, wind generation stuff like That is all corrupt as well. They're still trying to do to the earth, uh, you know, these uh, do-gooders who think they're do-gooders, these pagan worshipers of the earth, they're doing things or trying to impose policies upon people to try to preserve something that really, you know what, is corrupt because ultimately they don't care about people like you and I. They're only caring about themselves. In fact, I saw something, what was it, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos the other day was saying that he would like to see a trillion people uh, exported to outer space to live on little space stations in these cubicles or not really, pods, and then they can come back to Earth uh, on vacation that is laughable that's a joke earth is where human beings are intended to be that doesn't mean they can't explore but earth is where the humans home is and yet you got clowns like Jeff bezos that is out there saying you know what i want you to live in outer space and you can come back here for vacation because you see originally uh, not originally but this place is designed for me for all the wealthy people well, once again, that's part of the corruption that not only infuses his mind, but what he wants to impose upon everybody else and upon creation itself. But God has subjected all of creation to that type of corruption, whereby that one day, because of the redemption of mankind in the person of Christ, would be set free from that slavery and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is waiting for that. When that consummation takes place, then it will be set free from the sin that it has been subjected to. As I was saying before, you know, and when, when the homosexual crowd wants to go out there and do things they say as a private, no. Sin is all pervasive. It's going to affect everything at all times. Uh, Maybe not to the nth degree, uh, but certainly it is subject to the wrath of God. And as Paul had pointed out earlier, uh, the more that we try to suppress that truth about it, the more we subject ourselves to the wrath of God. Now, Paul says here in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now I've never had children. I don't expect being a male that I will ever have a child. Uh, I know that 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 God has designed women to have children, and in certain instances, not in not not being there alive and in person, but they go or they undergo a great amount of pain to have children. God had promised that to Eve way back in the in the beginning when, as I said here a little bit ago, when Adam and Eve fell. Uh, A curse was placed upon humanity and all of creation. Well, part of her curse was, or part of the woman's curse, was to have pain during childbirth. But Paul uses that as an example here of the kind of groaning that creation is going through, uh, waiting for the consummation of, of humanity. It's like the pains of childbirth until now, and it will be that way until, once again, all is fulfilled. All has been consummated for, for mankind to receive its glorification. And Paul says we know this. We constantly know this. All you have to do is take a look around, uh, which, you know, almost begs the question, how many people actually look around and observe what's going on in creation? Uh, we, Like I said, you've got a few climate change people out there that are trying to preserve the world for their own purposes. But, you know, how many people take a look at, like, we're getting, getting ready to have rain here, which is going to be a good thing. But sometimes that rain here in Texas brings us big, gigantic spinning tornadoes and big hail. And uh, in other places, it's going to be a major league blizzard. Uh, but how many people take a look at that and they go, uh, is that part of God's judgment here? Is that something that is causing the creation to groan? And the answer would be yes. But oftentimes what we do is we ignore that. Oh, yeah, we see the tornado. Oh, we'll experience a blizzard. But we don't account or take into account that God is the one who is subjecting us and creation to judgment because of the sin that took place way back in the beginning. We usually say, well, Mother Nature does this or Mother Nature does does that. That's all paganism. There's no mother nature. There's Father God, who who is absolutely sovereign in all the things that he does. He's the one who brings the calamity upon the earth. He's the one who brings the peace upon the earth. He's the one who does these things, and nothing escapes his attention. There is no mother Gaia, there's no Mother Earth. They don't do anything. They don't exist except in the minds of those who are trying to suppress the truth of God in their own unrighteousness. So the Apostle Paul then he moves on and he says in verse 23, and not only the creation, it's not the only thing that's groaning. But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation is not the only thing that groans as we wait for sin to finally be eradicated and things are returned to the way God originally intended them to be for the express purpose and glorification of God. We do. And when he talks about we, here's the Apostle Paul, once again, who had just admitted, you know what, I've got problems with sins, uh, doing things I don't understand and doing things I don't want to do. And I think that probably plays into what Paul's talking about here. We groan because we're growing up, because we're maturing as Christians. And I've said before, you know, when it comes to Christianity, it's a long walk. It's, it takes time. You've got to grow up. I mean, when you when you take, and it's going to be this way, I think, in eternity, you take a look back on your life, you go, wow, that went by fast. I mean, I remember just sitting here. It was it's kind of like what my, my mother used to say uh, just before she had passed. She said it was almost like yesterday. I, I can remember being or sitting in Mrs. Clark's room, Mrs. Clark's second grade class, and her humiliating me <laughs> before everybody as I didn't know how to write a sentence without writing all the uh, the letters together. And so she made me write my own story. Uh, I made it up out of thin air. And she did this with the express purpose of making me s- uh, space out my words. Uh, I, I, I wasn't allowed to write like a lot of, of Hebrews did. If you've ever seen a Hebrew text or even a Greek text uh, that is still extant, they didn't have a whole lot of space between their words either. That was a later convention while I was writing like the Hebrews and the Greeks, and she didn't approve. But it was almost like yesterday as I sit here and talk about it now. But that has been 50 years ago, at least. It's been more than 50 years ago that I sat there in her class doing that very thing. I'm groaning, though, as a Christian, as I grow up. Just like I groaned back then sitting in Mrs. Clark's room, groaning on how to write up and write a a sentence, never thinking, you know what, in a few years I was going to be writing a Ph.D. dissertation. Wasn't even remotely close to being anything on my mind at the time. But I did it as I grew up and learned how to write, and research, and think, and so on and so forth. It's that way with the Christian life. As we grow up and we mature, and we see where we came from, who we are today, and where we're going, we long for that. He says we long, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. Now, Once again, this is an already not yet scenario because once again, Paul had already talked about this, you know, the adoption part. In uh, verse uh, 15, he says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've already received that adoption. It's just not been consummated. It has not been fulfilled yet. We have not realized in a spiritually mature way what that all entails. It is still an expectation. It's something to come. It's something to look forward to. It's something the world doesn't have. The world has no hope. It has no expectations. They just look from, for day to day in the next ball game or maybe the next concert or the next TV program with the idea that you know what once once we're dead that's it. That's not the Christian ideal though. We have as Christians this groaning inwardly this expectation of things to come And he says we have the first fruits of the spirit I've, I when I when I first read that I thought about you know, what, what is he talking about here? the first fruits of the of this spirit. And the more I thought about it, I'm going. You know what? Really, what he's talking about here is the Christian has the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the very indwelling of the Spirit, and really, this is what spurs on this expectation of later on because that's what life is. We have real life that's before us. It's going to be glorious, not to be you know so uh, heavenly minded to be that, that you're earthly, worthless type of glorious thoughts but it's something that pertains to what real life and meaning is all about. It's not about playing basketball or writing stories. It's about glorifying God in the way he intended creation to be. And he says, you know what, part of that that groaning is this expectation of the redemption of our bodies. We've already been redeemed, but our physical bodies have not. Once again, I don't look forward to getting older and more creaky and more crotchety and and uh, more arthritic and whatever. I don't look forward to those things. Uh, but if that's the way that God intends it to be until it's time to call me home, I can say, you know what? Glory be to God. I don't enjoy the aches and the pains, but God has promised me something bigger, something better. And to me, that's even more good news. Not only is my sin forgiven, but the curse of the sin and the decay of the body is soon to be put aside, and God will give me a new one, one that will last forever, one that will not become crotchety and creaky and arthritic, Uh, one that will be able to endure day after day after day uh, what God has for me to do. In heaven one day, and and, and he goes. I you you know, this is, this is where really what hope is about. Uh, because once again the world has no hope and no God in this world, nothing to look forward to. He says, "For in this hope we were saved." Here we here we go once again. It's an already, not yet, scenario. We have this hope because we are saved, and if we are saved once again, that means we're not condemned. We're not looking for the wrath of God as if we're looking over our shoulders and God's coming for us. We're saved. We're rescued, if you will. We were at one time in a state of absolute despair with the only expectation before us of being God's wrath. And because of what Jesus did and because of what God did to elect us and He's going to talk about this a little bit later on in the next podcast, in the next section when we get to the tail end of Romans chapter 8, where we have this hope that we are going to be redeemed or rescued uh, in full. Not just right now. But he says, you know what, this hope that is seen is not hope. Uh, And I found this to be a kind of an odd sentence as well. It's like, Now, hope that is seen is not hope. Uh, What he says, if you stop and think about it, it's like, well, hope that is seen, well, what would it be then? But he says it's not hope at all. I guess it would be the fulfillment. In other words, you know, and if you see the hope, then it doesn't exist. It's something else because it's predicated upon faith. He says, for who hopes what he sees? He already knows it's there. And I think this is by God's design as well, because the just shall live by faith. They're going to depend upon what God has said, uh, not necessarily what He has, you know, propped out there for us. and let us be the final arbiters of all that is true and virtuous and wholesome. Uh, this is kind of the whole you know, uh, worldview that we see today for those who are not Christians. They want to think that, you know what, it's what I see, what I hear, what I taste, what I touch, and what I uh, smell. That is the standard by which we should live, uh, by how we should determine what is true and what is false. And I'm telling you, that's only going to take you so far. God expects us to live by faith. And because of what we see that's coming down the pike because of what God has promised, we have hope in that. We trust in that. We believe in that. It's objective because it's not something of our own contrivance. He says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And I'm telling you, I'm probably one of the least patient persons around when it comes to certain things. I want things done on time in a certain way, and and uh, I, I've become very impatient. Uh, and I can honestly say, you know, sometimes when I think about the life that God has promised him, sometimes I get impatient. I want to hurry up the process. I want to see the wickedness stopped. And there is so much of that in the world today. But I've got to wait. I've got to wait for... God's final word, the final, final declaration on my being, as well as what's going on in creation, and because uh, I trust God, because of what He has done in me, I wait patiently, uh, which is just does, doesn't come naturally to me, but I wait patiently. You know, some would say this is, uh, uh, you know, they they criticize this, saying, "Well, this is you guys, you know, you're you're." perseverance of the saints, because he's talking about patience here. That's just not true. It's right here in front of us. It's right here in front of us. This perseverance on the part of the saints is part of being a Christian and it's part of trusting God for what he has said. And so he also then, he goes on in verse 26, and he says, likewise. You know, it's not just creation that is groaning it's not just human beings that are groaning. But guess who else is groaning? It's the Spirit himself. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray for uh, pray for, uh, for for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. This spirit helps us in our weakness. The impatient people like me, those who, you know, are trying to lead lives that are of a godly nature and are unable, that see the law for what it is, and then say, you know what, I'm trying to obey you, Lord, but even no matter how hard I try, I fall on my face, I am weak, But you are strong. I'm praying to you, Lord, for strength, for increased faith, for the ability to obey you, God, but I can't. And that's where the Spirit comes in and intercedes. He says, We do not know what to pray for as we ought. Ought is is a moral word. We don't pray for what pray for as we ought. We morally should pray. But you may ask yourself, well, if, if the Spirit is doing this, why shouldn't we? Why should we? Why do we need to pray if, if the Spirit is already doing it? Because, what number one, it is a command of God. God wants us to commune with him. God is not, you know... Uh, off into the distant, just kind of wound up the universe and let it run to its end, as we talked about before. He's not of the God of the deists. God is personal. God is a communicative God. He does it through his revelation, in his book here, in his inspired words. He does it in creation. He does it in his son. God has gone out of his way to communicate with humanity, and he does it with his spirit. We don't know how to pray as we ought to in a moral way, as a moral fulfillment or obligation to God. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And when you really think about that, you go, wow. Wow. He intercedes. I mean, later on we're going to see where the uh, where Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Here we have the old Trinitarian thing going on. You have the uh, you have God the Father, and the Spirit and Jesus, all three in communication with each other in our behalf. If that isn't love, I don't know what is. We're not left to ourselves to try to figure it out. The Spirit wants the best for us in our communication with God that we can't do on our own because of our weakness, because of our inability, because of our sin. He intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And then he says in verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what the mind What is the mind of the spirit? Well, who is that? That's God Himself. We've seen this before in in the in the Bible, where God uh, intercedes or he he actually searches, uh, you know, our minds, our hearts. In uh, in First Samuel sixteen seven. It says, uh, but the Lord said to Samuel, "Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I've re- because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not man as man sees; man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He looks on our heart today. He sees your heart as you're sitting here listening to me, stumble my way through another podcast. He sees that he says." Are you doing this for the right reason? Now, I know that that podcaster there, he's doing the best he can. What have you done to try to encourage him? Are you doing it for the right reasons? Are you critical of him? And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Surely if he knows our hearts... Then he knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Now, I think this is interesting because there are a lot of people out there today who do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. They believe it's like the Jehovah's Witnesses, that he's an active force, kind of a nebulous uh, something from wherever, kind of like what they described as lightning. But here, God says the Spirit has a mind. A mind to be able to communicate. A mind to be able to relate to. A personal mind that has a will to be even able to talk to God. And yet God searches our hearts and the mind of the Spirit for the purpose of communication, for this way of relaying to us this hope that is yet to come. He said, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, once again, if the Spirit is not a person, he cannot intercede. And yet he does. He communicates with God the deep things that are so extraordinary that that words... Do not do, do not do justice for what he has to say. This is, once again, for our benefit. We're all striving. For this consummation, once again, this conclusion. To what God had started. Way back, really, in uh, chapter five, when. Uh, we're promised that you know that because uh we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God, and we are no longer condemned. We're being set apart for God's glory, for a glorification of our bodies, of our of our very being. Not that we're going to become little gods and goddesses running around and inhabiting our own little planets, Mormon style but that we would be what God originally intended us to be in the person of Christ, led by the Spirit for the glory of God. And once again, it's a Trinitarian effort. That's why there is this intercession. That's why we need intercession. Because without it, we're left to our own weaknesses, to our own vain imaginations. To try to do things that God never intended. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without regeneration, which is a part of faith, it is impossible to please God. We're enemies of God. And even after that, we're still walking around battling the aftereffects of sin. We need that intercession. That part that God can only fill in himself to be what God intended us to be. And so here we are. Uh, the future glory lays be, uh, before us as Christians. This is part of, once again, what Paul had, had talked about before. You know, if if a person could lose their salvation, they're missing out on all of this. In fact, they're really saying we're not weak. We're capable of doing uh what God says that only He could do. And yet, the Apostle Paul makes it pre- perfectly clear. Uh, we're not there yet. We're still going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to suffer. Not only from the persecutions from the outside world, but from our own sin, from our own growing up. We're still going to suffer. But God is there via His Spirit. Leading the way to the final consummation, the final hope that lays before us. And not only us, the whole creation as well. It's going to be restored. And this is good news. And, you know, once again, this is something you just don't hear of today. They think, you know, good news has to do with, we're, we're getting ready to do the Christmas thing here. Which I've refrained from commenting on before, uh, that I've that I've written about before. You can go to my website, capper.info, read a couple of articles I've written on Christmas, and how that whole thing is a is a canard. And, and, but I won't get into the details here. I've got very good reasons for it. But a lot of people think that's what it's all about. That's what Christianity is all about. No, it's not not even remotely close. You know, there's this struggle taking place. And I'm striving for something that's bigger and better than what is temporal, what is temporary. Uh, I'm looking for something that is eternal. Now, it's a day-by-day process, like I've said before, and it's gonna take time, and it's going to be a struggle. I'm gonna fall on my face But once again, by way of rebuttal, that doesn't mean I'm going to lose my salvation when I do. God has made that promise as well. And it's right here before us. And so with that, then, the Apostle Paul is going to turn to, you know, another discussion about just what exactly is it that is going to divorce us from all of this hope? What is it going going to take for you know us to walk away from this and well to no surprise the apostle Paul is going to say nothing that once again you know magnifies the hope it helps us to be encouraged to be patient and look forward to the things that God is going to do in us Uh, God is going to glorify us. And so here we go. Another hour has passed. And the voice didn't completely, you know, leave me here, uh, which is a good thing. So I hope that, you know, you at least got something out of this. Uh, If you enjoyed it, let me know. You can write me at podcast at capro.info and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. you can be an encouragement to me. You can pray for me, as I still try to get over this gunk that uh, God gave me. God apparently thought I needed. He said, you know, you're not being patient enough. So here, I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna help you develop your patience. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you were with me. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't get back to some of the people who Uh, have become followers. I'll try to do that next time. Until then, I would just say thank you for following. Uh, Share the podcast with others. I look forward to talking to you again as we continue on in our discussion of the Christian Constitution in the next podcast. You take care.